A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello and welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. My name is Jonathan Griffith. I am primarily a listener, but today I'm an interviewer. A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a volunteer-driven effort and as such needs the support of you, the listener. You can financially contribute online at athoughtfulfaith.org and you can contribute content like I'm doing right now. If there's an idea in Mormonism that inspires you or you think is neglected or misunderstood, you can pitch it to A Thoughtful Faith by joining our Facebook group and posting it in there or you can send an email to a thoughtful faith at mormonstories.org. For my first podcast, I interviewed Emma Lou Thane. She's a Mormon, a mystic, feminist, poet, tennis coach, author, a pioneer for women in business, education, and the arts, and a downhill skier. She served on the general board of the Young Women's as well as on the board of the Desert News. She's the author of the hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? In our interview, we covered a range of topics, from her experience of seeing Helen Keller as a young girl and the experiences that formed her spiritual autobiography titled The Place of Knowing, which I would highly recommend going out and buying after this podcast, to her memories of pre-correlation Mormonism and her efforts in raising awareness around mental health. We'll begin with her story of seeing Helen Keller as a young girl. When I was a little girl, I was probably eight or nine, my father took me to the tabernacle to hear Helen Keller. Everybody knew who Helen Keller was. We'd all read about her, and my mother had told me her story. So I was excited to go sit, and we sat on the top of the balcony right at the back. There was no microphone in those days, but with this wonderful, you know, <laughs> untechnical kind of thing where we could hear every syllable. So she talked at the pulpit and uh, in a very slow, deliberate way and told about uh, growing up and learning to speak and to uh, type and to, and to speak. And as I, I said in the thing, it was like speaking came into my, into my knowledge at that time. Language came into me as it came into her because she said, for, she asked for questions. And of course, she couldn't hear them, so Annie Sullivan repeated them. She had her fingers on Annie's lips, and, and then she'd repeat the question about how she learned to speak and to type and to talk and to do all the things she did. And then one question was, do you feel colors? And I'll never forget her answer. Very slowly, she said, sometimes I feel blue. And her voice went up at the end, and nobody knew whether to laugh or cry. But it was just so touching. And then she said, is your Mormon prophet here? And President Grant was on the front row, and he stood up. And she said, I would like to ask a favor of you. I would like to hear your famous song about your pioneers. I would like to remember hearing it here. So he went up and took her hand, and he called Alexander Schreiner, who was in the back of the 
behind the curtain there, came out to play it, and he led her over to the organ, and I'll never forget. She put her hand on the back. I thought, how is she going to hear this? I thought, I'm just a little girl. Maybe other people know, but how is she here? She put her hand on the back of the organ, and he played all three verses of it, and she, with her hand, was hearing through her hand and sobbing. And as I listened, I could hear all the words, and uh, ending with, and should we die before our journey's through. And there was something about that connection that just connected me with her, and I thought, whatever went between her and the organ came between her and me. And I believed. And I call it in the book, I call it the seeing without seeing, the hearing without hearing, and the going by feel towards something holy, something that could make her cry and could enter the pulse of a little girl and never go away. And that's how it's been. Thank you for sharing it. I wonder, do you feel like seeing a woman like her, is she a role model? Yes, I mean, you you know, when you're that age, and you've read, I'd read her story, and mother had told me, and I grew up with her as one of my heroes. Hmm. I read everything I could get my hands on by her. I still have all these books up here. And I have a thing on the fridge that says, uh, life is either a great adventure or it's nothing. And I think she was full of that kind of thing that just appealed so much to me. So, yeah, she was something that, someone that I just, I just sort of imbibed it all and kept it, and it was very important to me. So how have you, um, as a faithful Latter-day Saint, how have you come to embrace that term of a mystic and someone that, uh, who has had really powerful experiences? Do you remember in the book I talk about my first experience with, uh, with somebody who was a mystic? Mm-hmm. I was to speak at the funeral of my friend Joyce Henry, who was a psychiatrist and had disappeared. She was sort of a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. She was the only woman on the staff at the Salt Lake Clinic and a really remarkable woman. She lived in the neighborhood, and so we were visiting with her husband, and they couldn't figure where she'd disappeared to. Her car was gone. No, no, no anything. So what did they do? The Salt Lake police got in touch with a mystic in California, a psychic. She was called not a mystic, a psychic. And she told them exactly where her car was and where she was. It was up in Garzman Pass. You know how that would... This woman had never been to Utah. And the car was up in Garzman Pass, and she said she's not in her car. She's a few feet from it, but buried under snow. They went up, and there she was. So, I mean, who's not to believe? So this was my first experience. So when I heard about a psychic who was reading chakras, it interested me tremendously. I thought, if they can do that with that, why not with other just private things? So I went to see Rachel the first time because she'd read a friend who's, and she made a tape of what she'd read. And it was so right on that I thought, and I was very curious. So I went to see her, and this was in February before my accident. And she was amazing. She didn't know me from anybody. She was up in Park City, and she looked like one of my daughters. She didn't have any of the trappings of a, you know, a Hollywood. <laughs> but she just, she said uh, that, that uh, I needed to write a book. She didn't know I was a writer. But she said she could see me sitting at a desk and somebody trying to put a box over me and me just bursting out of the box. <laughs> things like this, you know. And so after my accident, when I'd healed enough that you really couldn't tell, 
I was so down, just down. And I wasn't feeling anything, you know, after my accident. I just was as blank. And I went to see Rachel, and she looked at me, and without knowing I had this accident. And she said, your colors are still the same, but they're very pastel. She said, you're walking very lightly on the earth. And I said, why am I so sad? And she said, you died and went to the place of knowing. And you came back with a promise. Until you tell about it, you will be sad. So that's what followed, was putting it all together in a book and telling about it and still talking about it. And it's very real, but she was the one who said, you better do it. And you've done it. And it's, and it's a powerful book. Um, do you feel like after having written the book and having spoken about it now for 20, almost 30 years, right? Since the accident, 26 years ago, 26 years Do do you feel like there is, there will be a moment when you feel you're done telling? I have no idea. (laughs) I just kind of do what, what I'm informed really. Night is my friend. I've told you. My mother's thing was pray at night and plan in the morning. I've done it all my life, but I still do it. I just say, okay, now let's think about what has to happen and please inform me and let me know. And I wake in the morning. used to scare Mel to death. He said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, I don't know. I've got to go to sleep. But it works for me. And so I just don't know very much about anything. I just... Follow the arrows, sort of. You, you say in your book, when you talk about the place of knowing, you said you'd been to the place of knowing and returned with a view as broad as the galaxies and comforting as my mother's hand. It was obvious again. The pillars of my faith were still intact, but the roof had blown blessedly off the structure to reveal a whole sky full of stars. That encompasses the whole book. Now, that that was the, especially the last sentence, the roof had been had blown blessedly off the structure to reveal a whole sky full of stars. That was the sentence that was, that, that's what began this uh, idea to interview you. Uh-huh. That struck me as, uh, as very, 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 very relevant to my own life because I, I saw in my own um, journey within my faith, my relationship with God, my relationship with Mormonism, that there were some things that I had to do away with and reinterpret, and I began to see, I began to see the night sky, I began to see the beauty of the stars in a way that wonderful I hadn't before. And it, and it wasn't that there was someone to blame. It wasn't that there was the church to blame or my parents or anything. It was just that my interpretation of the gospel up to that point had been. Um, well, and it's still evolving, but up to that point, I'd been very, uh, oh, uh, it was, it wasn't, uh, as flexible. It wasn't as personal. It was, it was, I had just accepted something that had been given to me. I hadn't, I guess I hadn't thought hard enough about it really. <laughs> and I hadn't moved out of what was just strictly in the manuals and what was just 
only okay. See, I never was there. Only okay to talk about. And I wanted to ask you about that. You talk about that, and and I and I love it because you were a pre-correlation Mormon. I certainly was. So can correlation you ta- ruined it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I do say so. Can, can you talk about that? What was that like growing up? Um, In a recent review, the Kirkus Review, you know, Kirkus is kind of the word. You get a good Kirkus Review, it's great. And in this review, I wish I could remember the names, but she said that uh, that I grew up in a non-doctrinaire family, which I love the sound of, because we didn't go to church, you know. And when Mother lived with us here, she came only when somebody was on the program. She, they weren't churchgoers, they weren't scripture readers, they weren't any of the down-the-line sorts of things. But Mother had two brothers who were general authorities that we listened to and knew about and loved. And there, but there was nothing except love and healthy, wonderful experiences in the church that we knew. But then in this Kirkus Review, the, the reviewer said that it's like reading, and there were two names of two Muslim writers writing about Muslim women, and it said it allows for the broad view. And let's, let's you see um, their, their faith through a, a different look. And they, she compared it to that, and I like that a whole lot. But you still identified as, as Mormon, you growing up. You, you were, oh, I was very Mormon, was, very much. I just uh, didn't like meetings that much, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I can remember... Very important things, like going to a funeral and hearing Adam Benyon talk. You probably don't remember him. He was an apostle and wonderful, wonderful speaker and broad. And he said there are three reasons for a funeral. First of all, to, uh, uh, let's see, to, to uh, comfort the living, to celebrate the dead, and to contemplate the eternal. Isn't that wonderful, that contemplate the eternal? That really struck me. And I was just not very old when I was hearing this, but I thought, that's true. How many chances do we have in church to contemplate the eternal? That's something that's very meaningful to me. Something that I love to do. I love quiet. I love chance to, to really reflect on what's going on. If you've read my book, you know this. But that just struck me. And I wasn't a very old girl at, it, at that time. But uh, I thought, that's what I want out of church is to contemplate the eternal. I want to be able to worship. And I've always sort of been had troubled with trying to institutionalize faith or believing. It seems to me it's so much bigger than that. And I find that I have troubles not with the, the big picture, but with the organization and the institution and the things that are generated there. And we spend so much time talking about that now. I mean, how many times do you talk about missionary work and temples and families and all this? How long since you talked about the Beatitudes or talked about some fundamental wonders that we get to think about and believe? We don't get it. So this is what I mean. That, you know, I still am very much, I'm, I'm LDS. It's, my, it's the old thing about DNA, but it is. It's part of me. My brothers and husband were all bishops and We've just been in the church forever, and I would never want to not be in the church. I go, I love to sing the songs, I love to see the people, I love, I just love being Mormon. But at the same time, I go to a Relief Society lesson about a man quoting men for women, and I just think, please, 
We used to have we used to have three, four kinds of Friendly Society lessons. There was a literature lesson out of the best books, which was wondrous, and there was a social relations lesson, talking about how to get along in the community and in families and all that kind of real stuff. And then there was a uh, let's see, what was the other one? There was a third one, and then and then theology was one. What was the other one? For goodness sake, I can't remember. But there were four. Different teachers for each one. I got to teach literature lots of times, and oh, did I have fun doing that. But you'd come away having learned something new and feeling like you know, you're inspired by these great writers or these people who are making solving social problems. Oh, cultural refinement. And go to different countries and find out what they thought. Imagine. Think of the broadening of that. Now, we're just like this. And... Uh, I don't know. I sit in relief society and think, oh, please, can't we talk about something other than just ditto, 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 back and back, the same old. Is this going to be anyhow? Sorry. This is great. And this is how I feel. What are three things that you would like to see change on a non-doctrinal basis? Well, I'd like to see us look at some of the historical, like, Wonderful quotes like, men are that they might have joy. How long has that since you've heard about something about joy? Just joy. Or talk about, uh, uh, you know, um, the, the everyday kinds of worshiping that bring in kindness. I, I'm sorry, but I, if, if I were to go to the temple, I'd want to find Jesus and he's not there for me. I never have heard his name even mentioned. But I love the quote about to realize the full measure of our creation. Isn't that glorious? That's just wonderful. But when do we talk about that? What is the full measure of our creation? I mean, you watch a little baby born. I talk about that in my book. I just love to think of the potential in that little baby and what's going to become. And I watch the deacons as they grow up and grow out of their pants and, and get taller and taller and and I love watching them. And uh, I just think, what's going on in their believing, in their sense of the world, and sense of the church, and sense of each other, and what they're going to be? So I guess I just want I want that kind of thing, where, like old Benyon, he was my mentor. and my, he, I talk about this in the book a lot, and this thing I really love, where he said, to be, have a happy life, you need to be connected. Virtual, I mean, uh, vertically and horizontally. Vertically with the design, or the divine, and horizontally with the human. And you get right in the middle of that, and oh boy, you have a rich life. How many times do we talk about that kind of thing? We talk about the humanitarian thing. We do wonderful things with humanitarian things. And basically, it's because we're kind. Because we've learned to be what Jesus wanted us to be to love one another. And so we take things to everybody. It's terrific. But I want to learn about. The reasons why. What do we think? What do we believe? What do we? And uh, I guess I'm I'm just wishing for the old thing when the Relief Society had its own magazine. They had their own budget. They had bazaars and raised money. During the and the First World War, they they did all this thing with wheat. I mean, they were they were a creative, self-organizing sorts. And they did just wonderful things. And women can still do it. I watched the women in our ward. I thought, boy, if you want anything done. I used to laugh because Mel was in the high priest's 
group leadership. And when they'd have a party, they'd start in the fall to plan a party in the summer. And they'd make all these calls and make all these arrangements and meet and meet and meet and meet about what this one party was going to be. And then they'd come off and I'd say, "Hun, all you need to do is find out what the Relief Society does. They could do that zip. But women don't have any say. Who are we kidding? Even on general boards, we, you know, we just did what, not really, we, a lot of us didn't do what we were told, but, but we were supposed to, and supposed to get permission. But I had a leader on the general board, Florence Jacobson, that if she had an idea, you'd go to Florence and she'd say, go with it. We didn't go through the memo world. It was just her. She was a wonder. She's going to be 100 years old. Oh, she's still alive. She's still alive. A most remarkable woman. Hmm. She but might that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And she with Bill Spafford, who was head of the Relief Society, they were part of the International Women's Council, and they went there and made a real impression on that. But see, they don't do that anymore. They pull them out. Sure. And then you look at what was it, 1977, when the International Women's Year conference was was held, and we talked about this on was it Thursday that we saw each other at the documentary. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if we could, if you could tell me a little bit about your experience with the ERA, with the with the conference that was was in Salt Lake. It was a it was a really sad time to me, just plain sad. Uh, I I didn't go the first day. There had been a committee of women who traveled the state and had meetings all over and asked people what was important to them. So they put together an agenda for this meeting to talk about things that all these people had said were important. They had a wonderful agenda, but they had things like violence to women, child care, I mean, just reasonable things that would help women's lives. So then they got here and they thought they might have maybe 300 people come to the Salt Palace. But what happened was that President Benson sent out a notice before. I'll tell you honestly what really happened was that Phyllis Schlafly, you saw her on the film, Phyllis Schlafly got to the First Presidency before any of us LDS people to talk about ERA. It wasn't going to hurt a thing. But they came out with these scare tactics about, oh, what if we had a unisex bathroom? Have you ever been on an airplane? I mean, you know, like like this was going to ruin people. And the women just wanted to be like men. And I thought, I don't want to be like my brothers. I love being a girl. But I certainly want to be able to... I grew up in a family where you could do anything. And I could do what my brothers did. And it was fine. And I was on boards where I was the only woman. And I felt perfectly comfortable. But uh, it was all just sort of pretend. We didn't really have any say. But what happened in that horrible conference was here instead of three 300, there were 13,000 mostly LDS women from all over, bust in from places and instructed to vote no. There was no conversation. There was no listening. And we'd go into the booth to vote, but everybody was told you were handed a flyer and told how to vote no. And there were men there making sure their wives were doing what they were told. It was simply dreadful. It was out of control. Nobody could talk reasonably about anything. They were shouted down. Oh, it was so bad. I was so angry. A lot of us were. I remember the night after that, I had a group of women up to the cabin. Just with this sadness and this feeling of 
waste, 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 what that could have meant for women in Utah. Instead, it just wiped out. So knowing that the church as an institution was involved in the opposition, how have you navigated, how did you navigate then uh, the feelings of sadness and and maybe even some anger uh, about this opposition and still maintain your belief and, and faith and trust? Well, again, this was an organizational thing. Sure. This was not the gospel to me. It was strictly organizational. And I was on the board with all apostles at that time. For 17 years, I was the only woman on the Desert News Board. And uh, Tom Monson and Jim Faust were co-chairman. And I sat across from Neil Maxwell and sat between Dallin Oaks and Jeffrey Holland. And, you know, it was just that kind of a group. It was wonderful for me because I had a forum. And they listened, and and I, I felt... I knew I was a token, but they didn't treat me as a token. And so I had an I had a forum where I could talk, voice my opinion on things. So how would a how would an LDS woman, LDS man, anybody that wants to have a voice but doesn't have those opportunities, how how do you think somebody can affect change in the church today if they're not able to be on those? I really don't know. I don't really know. I've been I've had you know where I could call my friends downtown and talk to them about things. But I would talk to someone who was a, who had been in the Supreme Court and who was an attorney, and I'd say, what do you think? And he'd say, oh, there are laws on the books. You know, they could rationalize that we didn't need this. Well, we didn't need it, but neither was it anything that would do any harm. So why not just vote it in and give that satisfaction? But... Well... Let's move to a positive uh, thing that the church was involved with institutionally. You were on the steering committee for women concerned about nuclear war. You were on the Utah Utahns United Against the Nuclear Arms Race. I read your poems and dialogue, the seven poems consider, about about the nuclear arms race. Uh-huh. And could you tell, tell me the story of uh, your involvement with preventing... Some of the, well, just your involvement well, with those friends things. Friends who were in these organizations, and friends that I really respected, like uh, Esther Landa, who was head of the, she was president of the National Council of Jewish Women. She wrote a forward for my book on Once in Israel, which I was very happy to have. But uh, also other women. It was really surprising how few LDS women were on committees like that. We were all so busy in the church, you know, with our jobs, that not many had time to take out to go to a meeting of the women concerned up at our cabin and talk about what we could do or to take a trip to Russia, then the Soviet Union, and find out how we could exchange our, our need for peace with people like that. My first trip there was in 1984, and uh, I was encouraged to go again by friends. I've had lots of good friends who've taught me things. I've I've not been the instigator of a lot of these things. I've just kind of gone along because it was interesting. But we took the Trans-Siberian Railway, and we went from Moscow to Irkutsk, Siberia. We were three weeks on this marvelous trip, can you imagine? And uh, that's when I had written my peace poems. And they had been translated into Russian and German, so I took the Russian translation. You may remember in the book I talk about getting through customs because the woman opened it up and read... 
And that happened everywhere I went. But of course the thing I found out, Jonathan, was these are people. These are people, and they've been stunned by this wretched, horrible war. They lost all these millions of people. We don't know what that kind of thing is like, really. And I went to the cemetery in Leningrad, where they were buried a half a million people more than lived in my whole valley of Salt Lake. And it looked like Mother Russia there with her garland broken and think of what happened to these people. And of course they want peace. Of course they do. Back home they were being called, you know, these we were called peaceniks and all these bad things. And, and I came home from that and I talked on the radio and I did talk all around and in my book, I talk about going over to Highland to speak at a parent-teacher thing. And, and uh, people, people didn't want to hear. Well, it's not so different now. Look at our legislature and what happens. But nobody wanted to believe that these people wanted peace. People who are people, and you think, there's no difference between them and us. But boy, there are people who want to make sure you think in terms of a group. And not only just a group, but a really bad group of people who aren't like us at all. So that's my peace thing. What, what was uh, what was your recollection of the church's opposition to putting the nuclear? Uh, oh, the MS missile. Yeah, the MS missile. Oh, that was a big thing. Yeah. And uh, Ed Firmage was one of the the movers and shakers in that. He was the one who finally went to the church and said, look, we don't want to have this. We would have had all these all these roads and undergrounds and all these things to have an MS missile right here. They, people in Washington look out and think, oh, that's just a desert. That won't hurt anything. We can put something in there. But uh, the church came out against it, and that did it. I just wish they'd come out about guns. Give anything that come out about guns. I mean, as if that isn't a moral issue. We worry about watching a drink being made. I mean, you're going to corrupt a kid because he's seen that, but he can carry a gun. And yeah, anyhow, I later went to a peace conference in Kazakhstan. It was years later. It was in 1990, and that was a big thing. And we we came back and had a, a wonderful thing on New Year's Eve night that we were going to talk about peace and have all these different faiths talk about their conne- connection by with peace. It was just a marvelous thing up in Kingsbury Hall. And uh, we stood up to sing, Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. And I was, we got a general authority up there. Can you believe we had a general authority on this program? And uh, with a, I was next to a medicine man from the Navajo medicine man I was holding hands with and singing this. And that was a that was a major joy. That was just wonderful. The uh, the Thane Community Service Center, named after you at the Salt Lake Community but College. I can't take any credit for that. I'm just the cheerleader. <laughs> Did I tell you how that name got on there? No. They wanted to name it for me, and I knew the pre- the president at the time of the community college, and I hesitated. I said, "I'm no Lowell Benyon. I don't take groceries to people. I don't do service." And, and he's, I said, let me think about it. So I called Irene Fisher, who was then running the Benyon Center, and 
told her about this, and she said, oh, for heaven's sake, and we'll get a woman's name on something. <laughs> and so that's why. Nice. Well, they, they call you, and in, in their description of kind of the history of how that came out, they say, Emma Luthane is a peacemaker. She cares deeply about people. Whether writing of love or loss, triumph or suffering, Emma Lou sees the extraordinary and the ordinary. She recognizes dignity and daily experience, and she magnifies moments that many would allow to pass without recognition. Emma Lou Thane's poems celebrate connections. And I wonder, you, you, you once said that you inadvertently became a spokeswoman for the moderate Mormon woman. Your writing deals with some of the frustrations, the dichotomies. As a peacenik, as a uh-huh. as a peace cheerleader, as a spokeswoman for moderate Mormon woman, uh, dealing with your own with your own frustrations with with the institutional church, and then writing about many other women's frustrations. Um, what have been some of your successes with the church, and what progress have you seen? How have you how have you made peace between these two different groups? I have no longer involved in the downtown church. I I respect those people who make all these decisions, but I don't have anything to do with anything. And so now I'm at peace in my ward. I'm a greeter. I've been a greeter for 20 years. I love it. I get to meet everybody, even the little kids. And I like to go to church. I like to sing. I like to see the people. I like to hear what they have to say. It's my home. We've lived here for 56 years. So the ward up the street is just second nature to us, of course. But uh, also with my my brothers, all married. They grew up the same way I did, but they all married women who are much more traditional than uh, the Mill and I are. We're still Mill was a bishop up at the an adult singles ward up the U, and we just loved our church work. And uh, are you miserable? No. Okay, I'm just going to lean back. Is that okay? Okay, just do anything. Okay. But anyhow, uh, I wrote a piece called Why I Stay. They invited me to be on a Sunstone program and talk about why I stay. So I did that. And it was interesting because I was on in the afternoon and we had this darling grandson whose name is Warner, which is my main name, of course. And he was just home from his mission and he wanted to hear me speak. I thought, I don't know if this would be the time. So he came to here, and I was the last speaker. And the other speakers were a lot more, uh, uh, what can I say, um, outspoken about what their troubles had been. And I could see him just almost squirming. He was on the second row with his mother and, and an aunt. And, and I thought, oh, just wait a minute, Warner, I'll help you out a little bit. But So I wrote about what, the things you and I have talked about the things I love, and that I stay because I love it. And I could see him just kind of quiet down and start to smile, and I thought, this is what I would like to do, Jonathan. I don't want to, I don't want to tear anybody's testimony down. If they want to go to the temple and find solace there, hooray. Whatever anybody finds, I cheer. But uh, I just think each of us needs to find our own way and to make the to make that way something that is is uh, accommodates our own sense of right in the world and not try to fit into other people's ideas of what we should be doing and just be basically who we are and be happy with it. 
I can't see going around complaining about what's happening. I can't do anything about it. It's just like with the news. I think this budget stuff and this all this sequestering, all this stupid stuff. And I just think Mel wants to watch it, the news six times a day, and I just say, honey, I want to I want to read a good book. I want to hear think about other things. I I mean I'm still interested in the news, of course, but. And I'm on this council where we're trying to make a difference in the state. But somehow it doesn't just undo me like it did 20 years ago. You found peace. Uh-huh. And one of the things that struck, that struck me as you were talking about this war that you've been in, you find great joy in community. And 20 years in, in, in the calling as a greeter. And, you know, that's something Greg Prince has talked about is, one of the, one of the best things you can do for the church is in your ward be in, be an influence in your ward and it seems more and more as i've kind of progressed in my journey like where i've kind of dabbled in activism i've kind of realized you know i think it's the ward that matters and uh that's the only place we can make a difference but my my ward people allow me great poetic license i say anything i want to say and they still invite me to speak, and they invite me. Like, every summer they all come up to the cabin. I, I, t- I tell, still take my sabbatical. In June I tell the bishop, or I don't even have to tell him anymore. He says, well, I guess you'll be gone. I said, yeah, I'll be back in September. So I'm up in my place where I get to be a little woods creature. And, but I invite them. And maybe 40 women come up, and we sit outside in this gorgeous place, and and uh, it's so different from being in a room with windows and having one person stand. So I have each one do something and participate. But it, last they let me have a th- thing of a theme. So last year it was joy. And so we talked about joy. And uh, it's just so much fun for me to have them. Where, where's the cabinet? It's in Mount Air Canyon. If you just look in here, you'll see a painting of it. Okay. And uh, so anyhow, it's where I've... I started going up there before I went, before I was born. Mother mm-hmm. was taking me up there. Sure. And uh, we'd go up and spend from the day school was out till school started. What a way to grow up. Yeah, no kidding. So, <laughs> you know, we were up in the trees building huts and in the ground building undergrounds and building bugs to coast down the street. He called through the, the, the big trolla megaphone, Sunday school, 11 o'clock, Stephen L. Richards. And we'd go down there, and then we'd get maybe 60 people. And we were just in our canyon boots and clothes, and, and we'd pass a sacrament in a water. We'd all drink out of the same glass <laughs> and sing. Oh, we sang. But it was, that's, my, that's my, my church. Our mountain home, Sadir, you know, it was, just, it was just this glorious kind of experience. I have wonderful friends who are very active, very down the line. One of my best friends is Betty Jo Reiser, who lives around the corner. She was on the general board at the same time I was. And, and she's as doctrinaire as I'm non-doctrinaire. We're the best buddies in the world. It's okay. You know, we both just respect each other. And, and uh, it's that way with everybody in the ward. But I can't keep quiet and relief society. In fact, I'll tell you one little story. When I was on the board, it was the first women's conference the church had ever had in conjunction with major conference. And so, um, President, uh, uh, President Kimball's secretary was secretary to our board. 
And so something had come up that day that I was complaining about at the board. Oh, I know, it was an editorial that said, and I was quoting Business Week like the one did about the RA at Business Week. We're supposed to follow Business Week. Anyhow, it said, if any, if any woman makes more than $30,000, she should not be working, or if her husband makes more than 30000 she should not be working. So I took this thing to that board, and I said, now look at this. Like Bill Smart's wife taught at, English, at East High. But, I mean, what kind of equity is this? That if your husband earns money, you can't. So I was complaining about it, and Dallin Oaks was the only one who'd read it. I was the only one that really read the paper. I was on the news content committee, and I had to read both papers, every word, every day. So I really, I felt, I felt like I was there to, to sort of represent women and uh, readers and the staff, none of whom had any voice anywhere. So I was their, their sort of champion. But so this was about women, and so. Afterward, uh, um, he came to me and said, uh, President, President uh, Kimball is about to talk to the women's meeting, and there's never been such a thing, and he's more nervous than he's ever been in his life about it. And he's written a talk, but could you look at it and look at it and just see what you think? So he got me a talk, and it was in great big print. You know, President Kimball couldn't read very well. And... Oh my gosh, I about died. There was stuff in there that I thought every woman would just curl hearing this. So I stayed up all night and I rewrote the thing and I took out all of this kind of stuff. And then I, uh, I met with Jeff Holland the next day and he really liked what I'd done. But then I held my breath because I thought, here came the women's conference. And I thought, President Kimball, don't read my words. It's got to be your words somehow. I tried to keep his phrase, and he was, he, was a good, he was a good man. But he talked about a mother in heaven in his talk, and so, of course, I left that. But he talked about equality, too, and his cute wife, whom I knew. So I could bring some things in, but he had things about single women that would have just blown the roof. So anyhow, I just held my breath when this came off. And it was really interesting, because he gave a talk that was such a combination. His son wrote a biography of him. And he knew about this, and he included it. He wanted my copy of what I'd done. But uh, it was just wonderful for me. It was such a confirmation. I thought, this is my prophet. He's going to have his, his way of saying it. And he did, but he, he all the terrible stuff was was out. So that was a really wonderful experience. And Heavenly Mother was in. Heavenly Mother was in. They mentioned it, but I had an interesting experience with that. One time I was really sick. I had this awful infection that I'd gotten from a new baby. I'd gone to California to tend this new little great-grandchild. Grand, I had infection in every part of me. I was in the hospital. I was really sick. And our then bishop came to give me a blessing. And what amazed me, it didn't seem as though he even thought. He just said, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, when he started his blessing. And I mentioned it to him, and he didn't even realize he'd done it. But it was just the sweetest blessing in the whole world. But blessings are big. I really appreciate and believe in that. Mm-hmm. Mormon feminism has experienced a reawakening. And I wonder, as a Mormon matriarch to modern Mormon feminism, I wonder what advice you would have to 
those that are involved in, in feminist movements within the church. I like a lot of what they're doing, and I follow them some, and uh, I've met them. I, belong, I go to a thing I had before I called Pilgrimage, where there are women who are talking about different kinds of things, and women and that kind of thing who are thoughtful people thinking about the things you and I are talking about. And these aren't people who are going to do the church in or turn into, you know, black-hearted folks. They're just trying to find the ways that have things work for them. And uh, I think for these people, the modern feminists, I think, do this, keep doing it. Keep, I think the question is a very healthy thing. And I think the word suppose is a very healthy thing. And to wonder to wonder all the time about this and that and, and seek. Gosh, who's, who's going to gain anything from just hiding under a bushel and not talking about things? But at the same time, I think give them a break downtown. They have a huge job, and they really, they never get informed about anything. Jonathan, they live in such a, a tightly closed little cocoon. Uh, I, I, there were... Two, two, there was one man on the on the board when I was, and he was a non-Mormon, so we were the two tokens. But this uh, is at Desert News on the Desert News mm-hmm. board, and uh, I was the only one on the Mountain Bell board for a long time too. But but uh, he said to me one time, he said, "Keep talking about things." He said, "These businessmen go to the elder club, church people go to the temple to talk." And all they hear is things that are praising them. They don't get in on this kind of stuff that I bring up, and other people would too. But uh, he said, keep doing that. Keep doing it, because they need to have some informing. And uh, they were they were great about it, but I was always a needle. <laughs> well, that's good. We're- then one thing, when... When I wrote, uh, where can I turn for peace, you know, I was on the general board. And we used to put on June conference. People would come from all over the country, the world, really, to, to learn what was going to happen in the coming year. And uh, uh, jo- um, Jolene Meredith had written music to others of my lyrics, and we needed a finale. And it was a time when our daughter, our oldest daughter, was having a severe attack of bipolar and eating disorder. I mean, and what do we know? In the 70s, what do we, not one single thing. And the church didn't want to talk about it, I'll tell you. But anyhow, uh, I, I said, let's write a hymn. And so I went downstairs with my only place was they had a house full. And it was easy for me to write three verses to where can I turn for peace because I was so, so full of agony about what was happening. But uh, then I called Jolene, and she was having troubles at that time. She had a history of depression in her family. So she understood, and I read, as I read the song, she sat at her piano and wrote, wrote the, the music just as I read it. We had our hymn by noon. And uh, it, it sort of disappeared. It was on that program, but then it came out in what was the 1985 hymn book. And, of course, it's had a life of its own because of what it deals with. Just last night I was talking to someone who said, uh, do you realize what that hymn has done to, for people who are in trouble? And it's, it's been a wonderful thing, but I don't, I don't take any credit for it because I say my mother taught me this kind of faith. 
I grew up with it. This was before my accident that I wrote this. But as I've told you, I just have this as part of me. And that hymn is just an absolute testimony to what I believe and do and think and let happen all the time. And so if it can, we have people making all kinds of things, translations and arrangements and all this with that, that hymn. And uh, I just think, fine, that's just great if people can sing this and get something from it. So, But you see, 20 years later, my daughter had the, the courage to say, I want to write my story. So we wrote a book called Hope and Recovery, which was published in New York. They didn't want to put the hymn in it. The publisher, they said, it's too religious. But we insisted, and it's in there. But... Uh, it's helped a lot of people. We've been active in talking to NAMI audiences. That's in the National Association for Mental, Medical, Mental Illness. And uh, the tr- it's been surprising. Now, let me think of the 70 who had a daughter who had... And wrote, did he write a book? He wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And he spoke on a lot of programs where we did. But he really sort of introduced the idea. In fact, one time they asked me to write the story of the hymn for the church news. So I did. But it's an altogether different thing now. They're willing to talk about mental illness. But it certainly wasn't when our daughter, mm-hmm. in fact, a very knowing, sweet man, wanted to give Becky a blessing to get rid of the demons. But she's had a fine life. She's, but she's on medication. Will be all of her life. She's married and had three sons and three grandsons and just had her first little great-grand, or great, or granddaughter. But she's she's been a a wonderful example of getting better because it's easy to stay in denial and think oh surely no mental illness and then get help. Yeah. And, and this what was his name? The wonderful man. I remember his saying, "All the faith and the prayers will not take care of this. You need help, professional help." You you probably know who I'm talking. About. Yeah, I remember the 70, and yeah. I can't remember his name either. Yeah, Deseret Book published his book. Yeah. yeah, we ran a program, in fact, in the Salt Palace that Deseret News sponsored. A big audience to where we talked about it. There were several of us on the program, he among us. What do you think caused the church to uh, recognize that just a, a priest of, a priesthood of blessing wasn't enough? Just kind of this kind of thing of seeing and then having people in their own families with it and recognizing that it's something it's not something that's a disgrace or a sin or anything it's just there a major problem it's amazing you know everywhere I go I, I'm invited to speak at a lot of places and I, I always talk about her because I want to have people know that it's okay to talk about it and it's always amazing afterward what do people come up to talk to me about invariably that's it not it not one other thing I've talked about, not a death experience, not faith, not anything, but that they all want to know about what happened with that. Hmm. And people who condemn the cafeteria-style Mormons, you just think, anywhere we belong, university, I mean, in state government, we don't have to agree with everything in order to be a legitimate member of something. And that's another thing Helen Keller said. If I did not love my country so much, I would not want to uh, find fault or find her shortcomings. That idea that you love something enough that you're going to examine it. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart. 
Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. See you.